Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Messy Table, an ordinary space for real women, imperfect stories, and the God who's constantly at work in our mess. Well, if we haven't yet had the chance to meet, my name is Jen Jewell, and I get the joy of hosting this faith-fueled conversation-style podcast, which unleashes a brand new story of hope and truth into your speakers, your earbuds, every other Tuesday which also invites us to make room for meaningful conversations instead of just skimming the surface. Y'all, we love getting to partner with the women of my church, Life Church, while simultaneously remaining passionate about locking arms with courageous women from all over the world, from all over the global church, who are honestly willing to go there to share a piece of their story. Because as you already know, we each have one unique perspective, one specific vantage point, but When we take a moment to share our individual stories and to notice how those stories overlap, we learn, we connect, and we grow. So here at The Messy Table, we have one ultimate hero. And trust me, it's not us, but it's God in the flesh, the creator of this world, the savior of mankind. Jesus is hands down the hero of this story, but He's also sent His Spirit to lead us and guide us and empower us. He has actually commissioned His people to be salt and light, to help the hurting, to loosen those chains that hold people captive, to share His love with as many people as possible. Y'all, it's like He's dispatched an army of everyday heroes to flood the darkness with light. So today, my friend Kendra Golden and I get to interview one of those everyday heroes. But before we get to our guest, Kendra is also one of those amazing women on the front lines, leading at our church as the central team leader of content development, serving in her community, advocating for those on the fringes. And speaking of fringes, May just happens to be National Foster Care Awareness Month, which is the perfect time to highlight an everyday hero who has basically given her life to serving others one ordinary day at a time. Dr. Deb Shropshire is a wife and mom and seasoned pediatrician who also serves as the Director of Child Welfare in the state of Oklahoma, who's helping real people, real families, navigate some extremely complicated situations with a heart of compassion, with decades of experience in the medical field, and with lots and lots of grace. You know, true everyday heroes are the ones who serve, and we just might be inspired to follow in their footsteps. So grab your coffee, pull up a chair, and join Kendra and me for a chat with Deb. Well, if there's anything I've learned, it's to surround myself with people who are much smarter than me. And so Kendra, Deb, welcome to the messy table. So glad to be here today. Yay. Thank you. So Kendra, let's start with you. You're actually co-hosting with me today. So you're also just a legend. Your fingerprints are all over so much of what happens at Life Church. And so I want everyone to just hear a little bit real quick about who they're hearing from. Tell us a little bit about you and what you're all about. Yeah. So our family came to Life Church when my middle kid was an infant. And I came on staff in 2003. And my role from then until now has included developing the kids' ministry resources, our curriculum and stuff like that for all our campuses. My stuff like that. Stuff like that. (laughs) My three kids and my husband and I became a foster family at Christmas 2009, which is how I intersected Deb, collided with (laughs) Deb in desperation and need. It was so great. And, you know, my kids are older now. They're 16, 20, and 24. And so we watch a lot of 
Marvel mm-hmm. comic universe. <laughs> and so I always think about those people, those Avengers. It's like, oh, but they're also real people with like friends and stuff. And it really, to me, is like I'm friends with a superhero. There you go. <laughs> like I know this superhero who's mm-hmm. really awesome, mm-hmm. has all these awesome powers and is doing great things <laughs> in the world, saving the world. But I have her cell phone number. <laughs> That's how I feel about you, Deb. I love it. I love that. I love that. I don't know which one you are. Which superhero? Which Yeah, which Avenger? <laughs> well, you know, so like I'm a DC Comics okay. kind of person. So it's, it's totally Wonder Woman. Like, right? Yes. It's totally Wonder Woman. Absolutely mm-hmm. Wonder Woman. <laughs> that is what's your favorite movie? 1984, the other one. <laughs> yeah, DC would for sure be Wonder Woman. What's your favorite? Avengers. Black Panther. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually didn't see it when it came out. I just watched it a couple months ago mm. and it was amazing. So good. But the one that was just out with um, Falcon and Winter Soldier was the one that made me kind of think about, oh, they've got like sisters and nieces and nephews and people in their mm. neighborhood who knew him growing up. And it's like, oh, that's like no and Deb. I love that. Awesome. Well, will you tell us a little bit about you and just who you are, what you're all about? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Deb. And I am Dr. Deb, yeah, (laughs) Um, a pediatrician, which is how I got to be Dr. Deb. Mm -hmm. But I always sort of joke and say to people, I don't actually like children all that much. That's kind of a funny (laughs) story that I wound up in pediatrics, which we'll, I'm sure, talk about as we as we go throughout this conversation. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. My family, we've been part of of Life Church as well for uh, Mm -hmm. since 2001. So this is our 20th year. You are seasoned. We are seasoned. We've been through multiple, (laughs) multiple campuses, multiple campus launches. And all, all grow those up. kinds of things we have. Do you yeah. like your own kids? I do like my own kids. So that <laughs> is, uh, but you know, back when I became a pediatrician, I didn't have kids. So I didn't actually know how that would go as a yeah. mom, but I do like my own kids. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I have the opportunity to serve currently as the child welfare director for the state of Oklahoma, which mm-hmm. is pretty unusual because most child welfare directors are social workers or they come from the child welfare field. Mm-hmm. And for me, coming from the field of medicine, it's a little bit of a, of a different intersection. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of a unique spot to be in. Wow. Yeah. So you wear a lot of hats. You I wear a spin lot of a hats. lot of plates. You lead in a lot of impactful ways. We're going to touch on some of those as we go. Um, I know it can't be easy. So give us some of your backstory. What some of the experiences that you've had that have really led you to have the heart and passion that, you know, allows you to do what you do today? Yeah. So when I was growing up, uh, my dad was a pastor, actually. Okay. And so I kind of did not grow up with an understanding of the foster care system or the human services government systems. I grew up in a small town where the church met people's needs. Mm. And so with my uh-huh. dad being a pastor and he was really kind of the town's pastor in a lot of ways, mm. uh, we had people on our porch you know, day and night who needed help with things. We knew who the families were that were struggling. We knew um, who needed food. We knew, wow. knew who needed help with Christmas presents, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. So I grew up with that context of how do you serve in a community, but out of a perspective of the role of the church in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to be a doctor. Nobody in my family's medical, by the way. Okay. My mom passes out uh, at the side of blood. And so <laughs> I think that's <laughs> Me part too, of mom. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think that's part of how I got there because I think I always had to deal with all the childhood injuries growing up because my <laughs> mom could to you. <laughs> so I wanted to be an ER doctor and I went to medical school and I was on track to do that. And really during medical school, I took a, a class, a rotation, we would call it in child abuse and neglect, because I thought as an ER doctor, mm-hmm. this would be something that would be important for me to understand. Mm-hmm. And 
most of the time I was training in that was actually not medical experiences. It was actually experiences out with police officers or social workers or in the court system. And there was especially one experience I had in, in the court system that was um, so powerful. It really changed the trajectory of where I was going. I was sitting in the back of a court hearing, which now I would understand uh, it would be the kind of hearing where where parents, their children have entered foster care because of safety concerns. And this is one of the regular court hearings where the judge is trying to figure out how's the family doing mm-hmm. and are the kids able to go home safely or, or what are we going to do? And so they're having this hearing and there's all these adults, attorneys and social workers and the parents, all these people there. And the judge asked a simple question. He said, where are the children and how are they doing? And none of those adults could answer that simple question. Mm. And I understand now what I didn't understand then. uh, What I understand now is that caseloads were very high for the social workers, for the attorneys involved. The foster parents weren't present at that particular hearing. Um, So the people who were there representing were were likely representing literally hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. And so they were shuffling through papers trying to get the right answer to this question. But. That was the system that was tasked with not only protecting children, but also ensuring they were well. And when the judge asked that question, where are they and how are they doing? And no one can answer. It really broke me. Mm -hmm. And I actually left the back of the courtroom sick to my stomach and just thought, I want to figure out how to help that system work better because I doubt that those professionals woke up that morning and thought, I'm going to go to court and not know the answer to such a simple question. Like they, I'm sure they were investing their careers Mm -hmm. in caring for children, the well-being of children. And yet the system wasn't working right. And so I just absolutely fell in love with the people who serve children. So even though I joke about, I don't really like children, but I'm a pediatrician. It's not that. It's that what I fell in love with really were kids in foster care. And Mm -hmm. I fell in love with their families. And I fell in love with foster families. And I fell in love with the system that's trying to serve all that. Mm -hmm. And boy, I tell you. It's a mess, like fitting with this particular podcast and the theme of this podcast, yeah. that, um, so many that complexities. whole desire or, or systems that are set up to try to serve children, uh, they're very messy. And um, I found myself drawn into that space. So that's how I wound up in pediatrics and ultimately how I wound up alongside child welfare. I actually had another experience a few years later. I was in uh, my pediatric residency. And uh, when I was growing up, our church always had, um, we'd have missionary speakers and like missionaries were kind of like rock stars for the church mm-hmm. that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And you love to hear the stories about Africa and what's happening there. And they were kind of, they felt sort of bigger than things I saw in yeah. America, frankly. Yeah. So when I was in medical or in residency, my mom called and she said, hey, we're having a missionary speaker at our church. And it was a family that I was familiar with and a speaker I was familiar with. So I drove down. I'd been up all night working at the hospital, drove down to her church um, to hear this missionary speaker. And I'll never forget at the very uh, beginning of of his sermon, he was talking about uh, walking through 25 years earlier uh, the city of Nairobi, Kenya. And he was talking about having a 24-hour plane layover, walking through the city and realizing there's not churches here. There's not any evidence that the Lord is here. And that it really burdened him and that he just began to pray about that. And, and he felt like the Lord was saying to him, ask me for something big. And so he began to say, Lord, I want to see like your imprint on this city. And the story he was telling is now that it, it was 25 years later, he's passing mm. through the airport again. 
He has a layover. He's walking around the city and what he saw were churches mm. and ministries everywhere. And he's realizing, he's remembering that conversation he had with the Lord. And he's realizing that during that 25 years, he had been instrumental in his career in operating, creating and operating a Bible college that had trained 10,000 pastors that were wow. serving all across Africa. Wow. And he was talking about that question that the Lord said to him, asked him, asked me for something big. And when he was talking about that, I had the same conversation with the Lord. The Lord just said, ask me for something big. And I, mm. I said, please be quiet. Cause I'm trying to listen to the missionary. <laughs> That's what I came for. And yeah. so then I again, <laughs> again, the same question asked me for something big. And I said about three more times, I really just want to listen to this. Yeah. And finally, um, finally stopped. Couldn't think about what was being said anyway. It was like, fine, if if that's what you want, um, I want to see child abuse ended. Mm-hmm. I just want to see this thing gone. Like, can't you do that? <laughs> and the response was, will you give your life for it? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. And the rest has been literally just um, walking through that without having any idea where it goes. And here I find myself uh, 20 plus years since that conversation leading child welfare. And let me just tell you, as a pediatrician stepping in the child welfare space, I'm actually the only pediatrician serving in that kind of role across the whole country. Um, We're just trying to wrestle through how to reform child welfare in ways that brings a different kind of sort of healing and well-being Mm -hmm. to the families that we serve. I mean, you have seen it like how many cases do you think? Can you even estimate? So a lot of the years I was spending time in a clinical setting, like taking care of kids in a shelter who were coming through a clinic or taking care of kids in our in our hospital clinic. And I mean, I kind of quit counting around 40,000 kids. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that's been several years ago. So it, at some point, it's just a lot. Well, and I've heard you say before, you know, when you get up close to these families or these kids or these parents that are struggling, you kind of realize like, oh, they're not that different from me. They just made a few different life choices. And if I had grown up in a different situation or with a different family, or if I had made one other decision, it could have been me too. For 100%. Sure. And that, that was one of the things early on that uh, made me realize this was sort of a unique calling or space that I was in compared to my peers, even other folks that were in pediatrics or in medicine. Um, Many of the folks I was training with really were distressed by what they were seeing in the sort of child abuse and neglect world and wanted to get away from it. And for me, I absolutely fell in love with the parents. I really did. I also fell in love with with foster parents Mm -hmm. because they took extra kids into their house. And I (laughs) just like, I've never thought to myself, hey, let's just bring a couple extra people home. In fact, (laughs) if anything, when my kids were younger, especially, I was kind of like, which grandparent wants them this weekend? (laughs) You know, so I love them. And I could use a moment. Mm -hmm. I need a moment. And so um, really just fell in love with with sort of both sides of that equation. The people who for either a season in their life or, or maybe even throughout their whole life, have never really had all the tools and all of the things that they need to to really thrive. I fell in love with those folks, but I also fell in love with these other folks who say, hey, uh, I want to help. How can I help? And, and where they step in is into that foster care space. Wow. Kendra, so you said you've been a foster parent. I'd love to hear your perspective. I know that's a pretty broad question, yeah. but just give us some of your perspective on what you've seen, how your heart has changed over the years. Well, yeah, 180, just mm-hmm. completely different. Um, you know, my husband and I, 
felt called to pursue becoming a foster family, had that conversation with our kids. You know, it was so foreign to our family. I remember our middle son, Preston, you know, we did this whole sales pitch of we're going to be foster families. And at the very end, he was like, wait a minute, you mean there are people who take kids from their houses? Like that was all he had picked up on Mm because it sounded so terrifying Mm -hmm. that that was happening to kids. But they had no concept that that was reality for other people's children Mm -hmm. growing up. And so the very first two foster kids that we took placement in our home, um, like I said, at Christmas 2009, I have a background in elementary education. I had raised my own three kids, taught in inner city schools. And these two little humans were showing me behaviors I had no idea how to handle. Mm -hmm. And so it was in that kind of desperation that I randomly met Deb at a mutual friend's party. I don't think it was random. It wasn't random. Oh, no, definitely. (laughs) God just sending me an Avenger or or Wonder Woman. We'll we'll stay with DC for you, Deb. Um, Sent her into my life. But I remember the very first time I heard her speak um, shortly after that, it was that question she talked about of, I'm asking God to end child abuse. It felt so elevating for my heart to look. I'm just trying. I'm just asking God, can I get from six o'clock when I get home from working and pick them up at daycare to bedtime mm-hmm. at 830? Can I just make it this two and a half hours and stay as Christ-like as possible? <laughs> right. <laughs> like that's Not what I was asking God for. But then to hear that, no, where this is all going is how how does this system end the cycle because as I got into it, you know, in every case, the the bio parents had broken backgrounds, you know, like right. these little people that I had, like their mother had aged out of foster care. Oh, so yeah. like uh, yes, well, exactly. Yeah, that's how mm-hmm. that's how this is all going. You know, this woman is a kid who didn't intersect with the church well, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And now here we are with the opportunity to serve these girls better. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of, it was great timing mm-hmm. on God's part mm-hmm. to bring Deb into my life. Because she did have some really specific advice of, okay, here's kind of what you're seeing. And, you know, maybe some training, additional training that we learned that was helpful. And just, you know, knowing that I wasn't alone. Exactly. I think that's a big yeah. thing for sure. So ending child abuse seems so huge, mm-hmm. right? So let's bring it down on a little bit smaller level. For you both, you've both played different parts in just pushing the mission forward, right? Mm-hmm. Pushing this goal forward. But I think for some people, it can seem so big. Like, I want to help. I want to do something. And again, maybe even other people listening right now are like, oh, are you going to try to talk me into fostering? And it's like, you know, we all are called to play different parts, but we do all have a part to play, whether you're fostering, whether you're overseeing something, whether you're encouraging, whether you're praying, whether you're, you know, sending Amazon diapers to a family who just got a baby. Um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on bringing it small. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, I think the way I have thought about it, even when I step into this sort of world myself and the way I invite other people into it as well, is really like once I had that conversation with the Lord about foster care and unique child abuse, I mean, the truth of the matter was, I think a lot of times those conversations are really just a picture of where he's going mm-hmm. and the opportunity mm-hmm. that we have, the invitation that mm-hmm. I was extended is, will you step into this? Get on and board. I, yeah. Are you going to get on board? So like if this is the direction, you know, the, the Lord's going in a direction, 
will we sort of step into the current of that? Ooh, yeah. and, and I think that's that's often the question that I ask other folks is for me beginning to have my eyes open to this world of sort of foster care and advocacy and all of those kinds of things caused me to have it on my mind. It caused me to understand something I didn't understand before. It caused me to lose sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And gradually, I would have actually been disobedient not to step into whatever. Mm -hmm. The first step was not serving as the child welfare director. Right. The first step was looking around and saying, okay, what do I do next? Because mm -hmm. I didn't actually know. That's a great question. Um, and so I, over the years, stepped into a variety of different kinds of service opportunities. I mean, one of the things that I did was, because I'm in the medical world, was I started looking around for who in the medical world I could serve. And so I found kids who were in families that were struggling. I found foster families who had kids that were in foster care in their home. And I just said, uh, you're welcome to come into the professional space that I'm in and I'll serve you as a medical doctor because that was my training. So I just opened what I was already professionally trained to do up to that space. Um, I had the opportunity to step on to service with community boards and things like that. I mean, mm -hmm. doctors get invited to serve on all kinds of, of boards and right. things because I think people think they have a lot of money. I, I mean, I work for the state, <laughs> but I, the disclaimer. result of that, <laughs> disclaimer, yeah, the result of that though was that I got to step onto uh, nonprofits that were already serving kids in the foster care space. And so I would say to those who are listening, um, if this is an area that sort of captures, that opens your eyes to something you didn't know about or captures your attention, really the question to ask is sort of like, if the Lord's going in a direction, am I supposed to step into the flow of that? Mm -hmm. And then it's literally looking around because I promise you, within your church community, within your school, within your neighborhood, there are already people who are serving as mm -hmm. foster parents. There are families who are needing assistance. Um, maybe they're not involved with the child welfare system, yeah. but they're kind of, kind they're of struggling. On the edge. They're on mm -hmm. the edge or they're struggling. And people can literally just look around and find those contacts in their life and begin to, to ask the question, what can I do to help serve That's you? Good. In addition, there are a number of groups in any community. Pick a community across mm -hmm. the United States. You will find organizations that are serving in this kind of foster care space, as well as in the adoption support space, as well as in the family strengthening mm -hmm. kind of upstream prevention space. And so it's not hard really to to look around and find a first step to take. And for many families, you're exactly right. It's not stepping from, I didn't know anything about this to I want to be a foster parent. Mm -hmm. It's often taking the first step and then the second and the third. And most foster families I encounter actually tell a story about, first I did this and then this happened right. and I met that person and then yes. I stepped in. So this might be a weird question, but tell me about what you've seen. Tell me about some of the trauma that you've seen. Tell me about the difference between a child who has grown up in a safe and secure home versus someone who hasn't? I mean, both of you, I'd love for you to chime in. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a great question. So I think um, the understanding of trauma and how it affects our brains and our bodies is evolving. But certainly over the last 20 or 30 years, the sort of science and psychology behind trauma has recognized that when you're exposed to certain kinds of really toxic uh, situations or adversities, especially as a young child, um, then those toxic situations, they actually affect the way your brain operates. And so, for mm -hmm. example, we're all wired to have a kind of a fight or flight response. Like people are familiar with that language mm -hmm. these days. If I was a caveman and the lion's chasing me, <laughs> I need the <laughs> adrenaline to be able to get my muscles going and run away. 
And so that's a normal way that your body's wired. But your body is not wired to be in that mode, that emergency sort of fighting mode 24-7. It's Mm -hmm. meant to be that in small bursts and then to settle down and be in a resting, growing, thriving space the Mm -hmm. majority of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, For children who are experiencing uh, especially repetitive, toxic, adverse situations. So think about things like uh, domestic violence relationships where there's this constant tension between parents. Think about sure. situations where one parent abandons a family right. and the, the challenges that that leaves Maybe behind. Maybe just like not having the stability of the sameness. Yeah, mm-hmm. not necessarily knowing where you're going to sleep tonight, mm-hmm. not necessarily knowing if there's going to be food on the table. If you have a, a parent who has or a caregiver who has really untreated substance use or mental health issues where you're not sure as a child, you're coming home from school or wherever, and you're not sure what you're coming home to. The repetitive uh, nature of those kind of situations causes children, young children, to be constantly in that emergency mode. And over time, that actually even changes the brain structure. Mm, So brain actually, the brain of children who have had those experiences looks different in pictures, like in MRIs and things like that, than the brains of children who've grown up where they didn't have to have that constant emergency response. And so Hmm. the problem with it is, as you grow, you almost don't know how to get out of it. So even if you're in now a safe place, like we would say, oh, you're safe. You have a house now, you have food to eat, you have people who love you, there's not Mm going to be all this chaos. Yeah. The brain, the memories, the sort of almost even muscle memory of mm-hmm. those children is still to be afraid to be um, in that sort of emergency mode. And that goes into adulthood. And what we mm-hmm. understand from the science of adversity is it affects you long into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And we see poor health outcomes, poor social outcomes, poor mental health outcomes in adults for years after those experiences were had. And not only that, but you actually see impact to the way that your genetic code is handled in your body. So the influence of trauma changes the way your genetics is passed down to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so children who come from families that have a long history of trauma, and I would say it's not just families especially these days where there's so much conversation around racial tension and other things like that. Right. Communities that have experienced trauma, people groups that have experienced trauma, that trauma becomes embedded in the genetics Mm. of those people. And it actually passes down. Um, (laughs) That's sort of like, well, what do we do about that? then? (laughs) Um, The uh, the upside of the story is it's actually fixable and, and we can talk about that. Yes. But that's some of what we're seeing with some of these kiddos is not only are they carrying the burden of their own experiences as it's cha- literally changed the way that their body operates, but they may be carrying the burden of generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of even like in scripture when you hear so much about generational, um, you know, whether the term is sin or whether it's generational, just family lines, traits that mm-hmm. pass on. It's fascinating to kind of even hear some of the science. Yep. Behind it, you know, kind of going back to the long list of ways that people can help mm-hmm. um, and be a part of it. Um, you know, Deb was such a huge piece of that for me. But you know, it's as simple as uh, there's a woman named Jordan who was the Life Kids leader when I dropped my first little foster kid off at the room every week, and she exhibited such mm-hmm. you know alarming behaviors 
that I was almost embarrassed, you know, to leave her there. Um, sure. And I didn't know, you know, if my number would go up or if I'd get called or what would happen. <laughs> but um, she just loved her so yeah. much and just instead had such a heart for her. So just from that position, there was a woman who I met a similar way named Brooke, who she was serving in Life Kids again and, and met the girls that way, but then would invite us to bring our girls, you know, our foster kids to her life group, whenever they would have a party in their life group, they were like, well, what's two more kids? You know, our whole life group mm-hmm. would keep an eye on them, you know, make sure they had a good time. And that was one of the only ways my family could be together just as a family, wow. you know, uh, for us to kind of regroup and be with our own kids was when they felt like instead of getting dumped off of like, oh, well, you're missing out on family time. As far as they were concerned, they got to just go to a great big party. Mm-hmm. And so that life group was such a blessing. There was a man named Jeremy that I worked with who just asked the question in such a direct way that there wasn't going to be a way to wiggle out of it <laughs> of what do you need? What can I get for you? Yeah. And at that time, I was like, well, I think I have most of the stuff I need. I don't have a baby monitor. He's like, oh, we've got a baby monitor at home. I'll bring you one tomorrow. What he brought me was he went to Walmart, bought a brand new baby monitor and (laughs) with video and gave it to me. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And um, there was a woman named Jill who uh, one of the things that was super difficult about, you know, having kids who, you know, has have been exposed to abuse, especially by strangers, is to teach them new boundaries with strangers. And so we couldn't just anytime we needed a babysitter, get a babysitter. We had this one person who was in our life every single time we needed a babysitter. She was always the babysitter and could keep them in our home. And that way she was helping us reestablish those boundaries. Uh, There's a woman named Peggy who took one of our little foster boys. And when she had him, took him on his first horse ride, like let him go horseback riding at her house. Um, And then I think about what has now been an amazing friend, Hillary, who then became the adoptive mother of some Mm -hmm. of my foster kids. And so just there's so many different ways, whether it's just those are great. Hey, so practical. I'm going to go right now and get you something. Yes. You have to tell me something you need instead of just let me know if you need something. It's yes. like, I'm never going to do that. On a recent podcast episode, Jill Donovan of Rustic Cuff talked about that when she had COVID that, you know, the people that instead of just saying, hey, let me know if you need anything. And of course, they had good intentions. They would be oh, right yeah. there. But the people who didn't even really ask, but they just did it. Yeah. They brought a meal. They yep. brought her a blanket. They brought her a drink, something that, right. you know, she wouldn't ask for because, of course, like. I'm not right. going to say I really need it. was not open-ended with Jeremy. He was like, what do you need? I'm I going to get that. it. Super yeah. practical. So there, it, there really is just, and could not have survived without that entire collection of people. That's you know, good. like it really is, whatever you think about the people you know who foster, like there are so many ways that they need help and support or just, you know, a word of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I'm praying for you. Is there mm-hmm. anything specific I can pray for you about? Um, all of those things are the lifeline And again, going back to that question, it's like that is a way to end child abuse. You know, our life group actually like put together all the sorts of things you would put maybe in a garage sale and make money and then went and set up an apartment for a bio mom so that she could qualify to get her kids back. Like there's just endless ways that all of those little things together are um, they make a difference. Right. Infused with the power of the Holy Spirit instead of it seeming like this gigantic mission that no one can accomplish alone. Right. Together, we can do so much more. Um, I also want to ask you, Deb, so you mentioned it, 
But someone who has had trauma, just the reminder that it doesn't have to be the end. They're not a lost cause. Like God has a plan for them and restoration is what he does. And so I know you've seen a lot, but I would love for you to just kind of share some, I don't know if it's stories or just a mindset now that you have where you're like, no, there actually is hope. There actually is something that we can do to make a massive difference. Yeah, I think uh, one of the values of having been in this work for now a, a couple of decades pretty consistently is you get to see the end of some stories instead of just the beginning. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times um, where I was encountering uh, kids or families was kind of either the beginning or the middle of this really messy hot thing mess. that was happening yeah. in life. And, and getting to watch some of that play out has been really powerful. Um, I have seen on multiple occasions— uh, situations where where kiddos have been able to successfully be back home with their family and still maintain relationship with the uh-huh. people who help take care mm-hmm. of them when they were in foster care. We actually ask our foster families to come with the heart and approach toward almost serving like extended family members for the families that are struggling. Many families who are running into challenges that, that result in, in children not being safe they don't have a social network. They don't right. have extended relatives. They don't have other people to lean on like all of us need as parents. And so in a sense, we desperately need people to step around folks who who are socially isolated and say, hey, I'll just function as your extended family. And so I've seen that over and over again, okay. both directions. So I try to separate from my staff the idea that um, – the beautiful outcomes are not necessarily all about a legal outcome. A beautiful outcome really is one where the people that we are serving understand they have value. Mm-hmm. And so I have seen situations where children did not go home. They stayed perhaps in foster care, ultimately to adoption. But the mom or the dad had a new understanding through the process that they had value, that they were mm-hmm. worth something. Mm-hmm. That's the outcome. Yeah. Now, there's going to be legal you know, wrangling and legal outcomes that are driven by a lot of things. But the real outcome is people coming from a place where they often feel worthless. Um, Brittany Brown will talk about shame and the heavy burden of shame that people often carry around. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you that mm-hmm. the families that we encounter— I mean, carry often just a, a giant yeah. um, uh, burden of shame around. Gosh. Removing that, mm-hmm. <laughs> liberating people from that, helping uh, someone see you're valuable. You have a purpose. There's something for you to do. That is a separate thing from sometimes what all of the legal outcomes in this system are. And that's actually the thing that will change mm-hmm. the world and, and change these families. And so that's what we fight for. So I've seen that over and over again. Lots of different legal outcomes. Sometimes kids go home. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's a, a what looks like a Cinderella ending. Sometimes it's really messy. Sure. And you get a few years down the road and something beautiful comes out of it. I actually heard a, a lady one time at a church event, actually, believe it or not, talking about um, having fostered some kiddos that um, after a pretty long period of time, they were really part of her family, uh, went home and the parent it had a lot of animosity towards her and said, you'll, you'll never see these kids again. And really just there was a sense that there was going to be a separation there and they would never see them. And it was some time later, several years later, that someone knocks on the door and they open the door. And it's those kids and their parent standing there saying, hey, could we redevelop some relationship? Wow. And so, you know, I think, again, that's the, the value of kind of being in this space for a mm-hmm. long time. A lot of times on the day to day, we get sucked down into mm-hmm. today's decision, today's mm-hmm. argument, today's, 
you know, what's happening. And I'm thankful that that's not actually the story of life. Like life right. is a long haul. Yes. Um, and God, story. he's not abandoning he's us. Not he abandoning hasn't forgotten us. Actually, yeah. the story you told at the beginning with the missionary, the mm-hmm. Nairobi guy, you know, it made me think about a seed that's planted yep. mm-hmm. and how Jesus is so great at these farming analogies. But it truly is right. so good. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And like you're saying, sometimes you don't see these beautiful outcomes until way, way, mm-hmm. way later. Um, I have, I'll show you guys this card. I know everyone listening can't mm-hmm. see it, but one of my best friends who fosters had sent me a screenshot of this and I won't go into the situation, but their foster son, dad, because of some situations, he's not going to be able to get his son back. And he knows that, but they're developing a relationship because they want him involved in the son's life. Anyway, I won't get into details, but I just love that in this card, he, it's pretty long, happy birthday, happy birthday, you know, all these different things says, I know you don't know me. I know I haven't been there for you or nowhere near the best dad to you, but I do know that you are loved and cared for. And I'm so proud of you. And I love you so much. You are blessed to have so many people who love you Wow! and just got me, you know, Yeah. (laughs) cause it's like, so even in this huge mess, like grace is messy, yep. right? And there's room for that. And there is still beauty in these broken situations. And and he's on hopefully the road to recovery to where maybe there can be some kind of, you know, restoration, even if it's not what we would have chosen. Yeah. And I think the other thing I always think about with as we're sort of working through this system is the stories of these families are our stories too. Like we mm-hmm. all are broken in yeah. different ways. Um, we world. all have needs. We all can help, but we all need help at different yeah. times in our life. And we all need restoration. And so the so idea of sort of there's there's us and there's them, those people who need right. it, who need help, those people who did whatever, those people who are involved in the system is that's actually not the story. The real story is this is the story of humans. Yes. And so good. there are just times when we have the opportunity to step in as the helper and times when we, we are the ones who are actually in need of assistance. All of us are in need of redemption and restoration. Come on. And yeah. so um, <laughs> come on. I think it's why I fell in love with those with parents. I, I looked at them. I was like, yeah, I mean, that's not my same life story. I don't have the same life experiences. Yeah. But the overall story, the overall human story, that's me too. You know, I can relate to that. And so um, I think that's an important foundational understanding for people who come into this space to serve. Beautiful. One of the other things that I would add about the whole idea of, of, you know, people listening may think, is it even possible to imagine child abuse ending Mm -hmm. or the kind of revolutionary dramatic change we talk about? But the science actually suggests that for those people who have had a lot of trauma, the mm-hmm. ones I, that I was talking about um, where trauma passes actually down through the genetics, even the way genetics is mm-hmm. expressed in the next generation. What's interesting is the science also says that even though that is passed down as much as three or four generations, which sounds like scripture, wow. that actually in a single generation that can be reversed, mm-hmm. yeah. which is also what scripture says. That's and amazing. Science, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I love it when science and our best sort of knowledge yeah. lines up with scripture, because when you see all of that, you're like, that's true. That mm-hmm. thing's true. I mean, I can trust it in scripture, but I can tell you right. in all these other fields, oh, he was it's right proven as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but science says that, scripture says that as well, that in a single generation, in scripture, it says in a single generation that turns to me. In science, 
what we see is that the ability to uh, to influence the genes uh, comes out in some things like good nutrition, good health. It comes out in terms of having relationships, having healthy people in your life that teach you boundaries, yeah. appropriate boundaries that you can trust, uh, that you learn some of those foundational things about connection uh, with. And those ingredients literally change the way the genetic code operates. Mm. And the next generation is completely different. Wow. They have a completely different experience than the previous ones do. And so when I talk about the idea that we want to see an end to this thing, to the trauma that so many people experience that often has occurred in their families and again in communities. I mean, the state we live in is a state that's built on uh, the backs of two kinds of people historically, a group of people in our Native American tribes who were brought here against their will, mm -hmm. and by and large, a group of people who came to Oklahoma because they had nothing else. Mm -hmm. They were looking for land or they were looking for opportunity. Mm -hmm. So you have two groups of highly traumatized people mm -hmm. who came to this state. And that probably goes for the rest of the world in some way. <laughs> it yeah. goes for the rest of the world as well. But in our state, we have the highest rate of childhood adversity, measured childhood adversity in the United States. It's where we started from. But it doesn't mean we have to stay there. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of, of hope that I have, actually, that within a single generation, we could see dramatic change. It is going to take people who will step in and bring Absolutely. meals and connect with that mom who needs help or that dad who needs help, people who will um, develop relationship and who will help folks uh, see that they have value, that there's worth and value there. Um, they're not worthless. Mm -hmm. um, they're not discarded from society exactly that there's actually value there but when we do that uh it actually changes the future you know some people will say why doesn't god just snap his finger and end abuse and make it all better but, i say that on a regular right. basis i wrestle with that on a regular sure. basis sure it's just so interesting though that of course he has done away with sin but we haven't seen the ultimate like restoration of all things quite yet right. it's so interesting to me that he chooses like his plan is to use people to bring about so much of this redemption. Right. It's, it is. It's really startling. I've heard it. You know, God has as much of a right to ask us why there's still sin in the world as we do of him. That's you know, it's point. like, well, mm -hmm. that's good. He's tasked us to be mm -hmm. the light, to bring the truth and freedom. It is something I wrestle with um, because I want it to go faster. Yep. Yeah. I'm 20 plus years now into kind of this journey into saying yes. Almost actually start almost 25 into this journey. And it is a current wrestle. Like, I thought it would be better by now. Like, mm -hmm. I thought, I mean, some many things are. But I thought we'd be further down um, the way. And so it is one of the places that I am just, I think, for a little while kind of sitting with the thought, do I have the right picture in my mind? Like what, in a sense, you know, sometimes we think we know what the Lord's going to do. And then usually we don't actually, he's got, <laughs> a, he's got a, a plan or a story that looks very different than whatever we thought success was going to be. So I know for me personally, I'm wrestling with what would success actually look like in this space? Because mm -hmm. I have an idea. Maybe it's, maybe it's not quite the right idea. I'm not sure, but I do wrestle with the, mm -hmm. like, it's not that he doesn't show up. I just want him to show up bigger. I know. Yeah. Like, come on. You know, yeah. so when I'm in my car driving around, it's the uh, the conversation we have. And sometimes it's a loud conversation, the Lord and I. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. It's that holy discontent. Mm -hmm. It is. 
And in some ways, we know the world's going to get darker and darker. But in other ways, we know that his light's going to shine brighter and brighter. And it's not just about the benefits that we receive when we follow Christ, because sometimes it really involves suffering and hard things. But there truly is such a peace and the possibility of restoration in such a different way Mm -hmm. when we are seeking him and following him and in community the way that the Bible talks about and all of those just beautiful, amazing things. Oh, I see miracles every day. Yeah. I mean, even though I'm sort of like discontent, I want to see something bigger. The truth of the matter is I see miracles every single day around mm-hmm. us. There's no question. Yeah. One of the questions that you had had for me uh, was around like what keeps me awake at night. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that keep me awake at night that I my hope would be that people who listen to this might consider how they might kind of get involved. One of those is parents keep me awake at, light, at night. Like the idea that there are these parents who um, encounter our system. Typically, they're not the ones calling saying, hey, I need some help. <laughs> Typically, someone else is calling. Mm-hmm. But there are these parents that often don't have an advocate. And so people advocate for the kids. They they advocate in lots of different other legal ways. But really, who's cheering for parents? And so I know that uh, it's an area that I'm leading our team uh, to move in the direction of how do we engage parents early on? Um, and cool. how do we build, again, that sort of social connection and those supports around parents? Because sometimes they, they need a mother. They, they need a absolutely. father. Absolutely. You know, it's like you were saying right. earlier. She didn't have a mother. Mm-hmm. The only person who was in the hospital when those kids were born was her former foster mom. Mm-hmm. When nobody else came. Yeah. That's one thing that burdens me. A second thing that burdens me is that we have kids that are in our system, in our child welfare systems, and it's true across our country. It's actually true around the world. In our uh, systems that care for these children, we have kids that we don't have adequate resources to take care of. And practically in my state and in many states, uh, that looks like an adequate supply of foster homes who will step into the space and take care of kiddos. And especially those foster homes that are comfortable I shouldn't say comfortable. Who's comfortable? Right. But we're not going to be comfy. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> willing to step in with teenagers. Um, Absolutely. I, I have teenagers and I really like parenting them. It's, I think, my favorite phase so far. But, you know, willing to step into that, willing to step into space with a kid who's got lots of trauma, with kiddos who have significant developmental disabilities and mm-hmm. trauma. You put those two things together and it can be a real uh, challenge. Uh, families who are willing to step into the space with siblings, sibling groups. One of the most awful things that I have to deal with every single day is the fact that the more siblings you have, if you enter foster care, the more likely you are that they're going to be split among families. Mm -hmm. And so um, those are some of the things that 100% keep me awake at night because I worry about if you've had to come into the foster care system as a child, can I provide for you something better than where you came from? Mm -hmm. And if I can't, what business do I have being in your life? And yet I know that those kiddos need that safety, stability, the mentoring, the adult relationships, the nutrition, the health, the things that come um, sometimes uh, from the families that serve in our system. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there's still work to do, basically. There's still plenty of work to do. <laughs> there's a lot of opportunities to just be the body of Christ. Um, you know, I think about the analogy that Paul uses of like the church being the body of Christ, but like I literally saw... You know, you think about, I don't know, maybe a transformer or some kind of a toy. It's like all of these humans working together. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I saw Jesus Mm -hmm. clearly and in person a few weeks after we got our first two kiddos. Another church in our community that we're not a member of, that we don't 
you know, tithe to or have no affiliation with hosted a Christmas party. And when we showed up, somehow, even though we'd only had the kids for a couple of weeks, they had gifts there appropriate for their gender and age with their name on it. They had mm-hmm. gifts there for my children mm-hmm. with the appropriate gender, appropriate age with their name on it. Wow. They had stockings. They had cookies. They had a <laughs> guy in their church dressed up as Santa and <laughs> let us get Santa pictures. Um, everywhere I looked, my husband and I kept looking at each other with tears in our eyes of like, I could see Jesus everywhere. Yeah. It's like, this is what he looks like. This mm-hmm. is what he looks like. And then even when we were just in such awe, like kind of stumbling out into the parking lot, putting our kids back into the car and stuff, they said, oh, bring your car around through the portico. And we came and they opened our trunk and had a laundry basket with laundry detergent and peanut butter and macaroni and cheese and paper towels and diapers and put that in our trunk. And I'm like... Guys, this is mm-hmm. what Jesus looks like. Mm-hmm. Like if you met that 33-year-old Hebrew man from the first century, <laughs> he could not looked more like Jesus yeah. than that so um, body of Christ. But so um, practical just too. Like we can do these little was, small, yeah, simple somebody things. Somebody just baked cookies. Yeah. That's all they did. Somebody mm-hmm. with puff paint wrote names on stockings. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody mm-hmm. showed up in their Santa costume. Um, somebody brought their camera. Like it was incredible how tangibly you could see Jesus that day. And it was like, this is just the church being what we were told we were supposed to be. Wow. My guess is that is also what sustained you all for as long as as it did, because you've mentioned earlier when you were talking the isolation Mm -hmm. of fostering and you were talking about taking your kiddos and leaving them in, in, you know, kids church and those kinds of things. Foster parents do talk about isolation often from maybe their own families who Mm -hmm. may have opinions about whether they should step into fostering. They Mm -hmm. talk about isolation from the standpoint of, um, you know, the way they have to interact with schools, the way they interact with child care, different kinds of things. And I mean, just going into the grocery store with a cart full of kids that don't match and the kinds of stares or questions you get. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think sometimes people just genuinely don't know what to do or say. Yeah. But it still can be isolating. It can be. And so um, you had to step into fostering, but having all those other components around you made it actually doable mm-hmm. right. for more than just a minute. Yeah. Unfortunately, we we do see a number of families who step into fostering who they just don't last. Like they, it's a very short term kind of thing. And the overwhelming difference between those families and the families who say this is going to be our family's mission for a while mm-hmm. is often whether they have that support network built around them. Absolutely. Okay. So speaking of networking, what other resources can we talk about that are just going to be super helpful for people to know? So Deb's not going to say this, so I'll say a resource for her. But early on in our relationship, she wrote a version Bible plan. Yeah, she did. Called it, was, Fostering it wasn't a Hope. Bible plan when I wrote it, but it was <laughs> blog posts. But we got these blog posts put together and put them into a Bible plan. It's called Fostering Hope in the version Bible app. And it is incredible. Every single day tells a story. And it's a specific story of, of a human that she encountered in her so journey. Good. How so long great. is it? I think it's 30, 30 days. days. Yeah, 30 it's days. kind of a little awesome. month. Yeah. Uh, That's good. You could do. Um, If you're brave enough, because uh, it's pretty hard, I think, to read through those stories and not see something, some next step to take. So there's a little bit of courage required to actually read through that. Um, You know, for some folks, they may be looking for resources or, or ways to sort of step in and connect. And certainly, again, 
uh, there are a number of nonprofits and, and government agencies that would be happy to let someone step in and help serve, whether it's serving their practical space with a nonprofit or whether it's stepping into fostering in your particular state or, or community. In addition, there's folks who are already kind of in the space who are saying, hey, I don't know how to deal with the trauma I'm dealing with or things like that. And so one additional resource for those families that may be trying to understand or learn more about trauma or attachment is really um, there's some great work that's been done by Dr. Karen Purvis out of the TCU Institute of Child Development. And you can go online and TCU has a ton of videos and information Mm -hmm. under the heading Empowered to Connect. We can link that up. Really, that's, that's a fantastic resource for just even if you're thinking about stepping into space, just understanding uh, some of the the trauma and attachment issues that children sometimes face. Mm-hmm. It was powerful training for us that we got a few years after we started, but it, it's, yeah. Do you think so it's equipping. helpful for someone who has, maybe as an adult and has experienced trauma or totally different? Um, I mean, I think it's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's good for parents. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's actually good stuff for anybody who's parenting. Mm-hmm. It's just a great um, perspective shifter anytime you're anywhere and you see somebody melting down, instead of thinking, well, that kid's a brat, you're thinking, wow, this environment has somehow triggered them. They're feeling dysregulated. I wonder what we can do to help that person get regulated again. You know, you just come at those situations totally Mm -hmm. differently. That's good. Any other resources you want to share? No, I think those are the main. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing. That Bible plan will jack you up, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's a throw down. Everybody read it. Real quick, tell us the difference between this kind of therapeutic foster care versus regular foster care. What do you need? What do we need? What do our states need? Yeah, so every child who enters the foster care system doesn't necessarily need the same thing. Just like our own kids. I have two kids and they need different things from me. Same thing is true for these kids. And so many children who enter foster care, um, really what they are needing is this sort of safety and security of I have a stable home. I have a family who's making sure I'm getting to school and all of those kinds of things. But there's some children who need more than that, who have significant behavioral challenges, often mixed with developmental challenges. And the result of that is the need for a foster family that is uniquely equipped to serve that. And and we don't expect people to come to our system already knowing how to do that. Uh, instead, we actually recruit therapeutic foster families to come in that we can train. We can provide extra support for okay. extra um, access to therapeutic services mm-hmm. and really just sort of support that family in a different way because we know that the children who are being placed in their home maybe have a higher level of needs. In the state where I operate, literally 100 families like that would change my world. (laughs) I would Mm -hmm. sleep differently at night if I had 100 more therapeutic foster families. it's a huge need. It's a huge huge need. We are uh, currently actively recruiting and running a campaign to try to gather those families that are willing to intentionally step into a space where they'll say, I'll take on um, serving a child that has extra behavioral health needs. I don't know of a place around the country, honestly, that doesn't have a gap in the space and needing mm-hmm. families to, to really take that on. But you're not alone in doing it. Again, extra training, a great deal of extra support to be able to learn how to meet those children's needs. Okay. Good and to this know. can be, you know, a family. It could be a married couple who doesn't have their own kids, a single person, empty nesters, like really anyone. I've seen in all of those things I just said, I've seen people doing a really great job mm-hmm. um, providing a home to some kiddos. Yeah, we sort of laugh and say, you know, foster families come in all shapes and sizes, and that's 100% true. Hmm. All right, Deb, it's probably time for us to close this up. What one final word of encouragement or just last thing you want to leave people with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, boy, that's a that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, like the Lord is moving in this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no question in my mind about it. What I've seen over the last twenty or twenty five years, I literally have seen Him moving on the daily, <laughs> and in big ways in our country, in our state. And I would just say, man, I hope a lot of people who are listening to this would, would sort of get involved because it changes you. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not that just that for me that I've just been able to sort of do this thing in my career. It's that it has completely wrecked and changed me mm-hmm. and caused me to grow much closer to the Lord in my own personal walk. I've had to be more dependent. For sure. I like to be independent. <laughs> I've had to be very dependent <laughs> in this space. Um, it's caused me to dream bigger. It's caused me to pray bigger, to pray for bigger things. And then sometimes to see those actually answer and go, oh, I didn't pray big enough. Um, Isn't that the journey that we want to be on? And and I've seen that and I've just invited others to be in that space as well. That's great. Thank you, Dad. Dr. Dad. Welcome. It's been (laughs) so awesome to hear from you. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, all the resources mentioned are linked in the conversation notes. Be sure and check out Dr. Deb's Bible plan, Fostering Hope on the YouVersion Bible app. You can also subscribe to this podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. And we'd love to continue the conversation by connecting with you on Instagram at The Messy Table Podcast. Y'all truly thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us in this space. And as you head back into your world and into your week, don't forget. Yes, life is messy, but God is at work in your mess.